1: Beginning in the 17th century, European countries such as Britain and France began colonizing various countries east of Europe. These cultures they encountered were very different from their own. The European colonizers imposed their culture on the people they were colonizing and exploited them for free labor and natural resources. The Europeans tried to justify their colonization efforts by framing it as a civilizing mission, that they were helping these people by bringing them into the modern age. This view has largely and negatively shaped how Western societies view this part of the world, sometimes called the East. For hundreds of years, Westerners justified this view, presenting themselves and believing themselves to be better than Eastern peoples. Part of how they did this was through the academic discipline called Orientalism.
0: Orientalism is the discipline of uh, studies of language, culture and history, that is uh, oriented, this is really n- not a pun, but that's precisely the point, um, towards uh, the cultures of the East. Um, and the East is a very, very broad category um, that includes uh, basically anything that's East of, of, of Istanbul, <laughs> actually. Um, so all the way to the what we call the Far East, uh, which is now no longer being said, the Near East is the kind of Mediterranean sort of Arab world, the far, far East is the world of you know, China and Japan and, and so on.
1: That's Stathis Gagoras, professor of comparative literature and society at Columbia University. For hundreds of years, Orientalism went hand in hand with the politics of the time. When Europeans studied these cultures as other, they justified their view that the so called East was lesser than Europe.
0: They studied those cultures um, as um, the opposite of Europe. I mean, quite clearly. They understood their ancient significance, even their ancient glory. It's not that they minimized the achievements, let's say, of Chinese civilization. Uh, they didn't, but they saw it as some considerably, something considerably different, other to uh, what is Europe.
1: Professor of literature and public intellectual Edward Said gave a new meaning to the term Orientalism. He used the term to refer to the West's condescending depiction and portrayal of the East. In 1978, he published his book of the same name.
0: It's a study of how uh, European societies, uh, primarily British and French, um, constructed, first of all, you know, envisioned, constructed, and enacted um, a, a, um, a world that we call the Orient, that they called the Orient back then, that we call the East now.
1: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Stathis Gagoras to discuss Edward Said's Orientalism.
0: One of the points that Said makes in Orientalism is that this, what he calls sort of the construction of the East as a category, uh, was characterized by the fact that uh, it belonged entirely to the past. That whatever, whatever it had achieved had been done. And that in the present, uh, it, was, it, 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 it was a world that was not developing. That, that in essence, it had remained uh, in this sort of, uh, you know, ancient past in essence, not even proximate. Uh, And that its civilization at the current point was a kind, current point being the 19th century, uh, was in decline, in a kind kind of irreparable decline.
1: Orientalism, the academic discipline, celebrated the achievements of ancient Eastern societies. But in doing so, it simultaneously framed contemporary Eastern societies as lesser than their ancient counterparts. Because the Europeans engaging in Orientalist studies and colonization saw themselves as superior to modern Eastern societies, they felt entitled to claim their historical artifacts.
0: Another discipline that is very, very much implicated in Orientalism, literally in the nineteenth century, of course, is archaeology. Archaeology being, again, um, you know, uh, the kind of science and, and discipline that is conducted elsewhere. Right. Um, in, 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 in that sense, uh, hence the, you know, the great excavations, of course, in the uh, Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean world uh, at the time. Uh, so it was a kind of archaeology of culture, um, of cultures that are presumed to have died. Uh, and that is a very important separation point, while European cultures are still living and a vibrant, etc., etc.
1: These European scientists and academics took their work very seriously.
0: They were experts. They knew languages, extraordinary number of languages. uh, And they were very learned. And Said, you know, to be fair, he talks about that. He recognizes um, the the kind of um, the knowledge that they have. He contextualizes this knowledge and, and politicizes it. And I mean politicizes here in the best possible sense understands its politics, I mean. Uh, But he recognized
1: it. Because Europe had established colonies in the East, Orientalism, the discipline, wasn't confined to the page. It was popular for aristocratic youth to take a year or two off from school to travel to these places in the European colonial sphere and study these ancient cultures.
0: So in the context of that kind of aristocratic colonial privilege, you have these travelers. Uh, It was called the Grand Tour. Uh, as we know it, and um, they would travel to these lands w- where uh, great civilizations once existed, which, to which they have access, access now to travel because of, precisely because of colonialism.
1: The Grand Tour typically began in Greece and Rome. Although Western European society drew much inspiration from the ancient classical world, modern Greece was still categorized as being part of the East.
0: Greece at that point is still part of the Ottoman Empire. So in that sense, Greece is very, very much part of the Orient. Uh, and, and, and Italy does not exist as a nation. It's just a bunch of principalities.
1: The Grand Tour, like archaeology, focused on the past achievements of great civilizations from these regions. But by doing so, it diminished the modern cultures in those areas. It's a
0: famous uh, quotation by uh, René Chateaubriand, who was one of the great... Um, uh, writers of the French Romanticism, uh, he says, I'm I'm um, I'm traveling to Greece to see uh, uh, a, a culture which is dead, something like that, or to see you know the culture of a people who are dead, which is kind of remarkable because there are people who living there, right? But for him, the people who live there don't matter at all. What matters is the what matters are the traces. of of that which, of people who have died. So that is indicative of Orientalist attitudes. People would travel through uh, and they would be unconcerned with what goes on around. uh, And they would look at these archaeological sites.
1: In this way, European academia and politics perpetuated colonialism and justified the view that Europe was superior to Asia. This view spread through European popular culture as well. Many Europeans who went on the Grand Tour would then write fictional and non-fictional accounts based on their experiences of these foreign cultures. They
0: would get to write about them in these narratives, which were sort of like chronicles, um, which would then became bestsellers. Uh, they, they became uh, inc- incredibly widely read accounts um, in, and translated in, in in many of the European languages and, and read by the youth including women, this is actually also very important, of course, of the privileged classes, again, that goes without saying. And that became part of their education in the broader sense, their cultivation.
1: In addition to European literature about the East, Orientalism was also expressed in the visual arts. European painters, especially French and English, depicted magical scenes of the East, blurring the line between fantasy and reality.
0: So in that sense, um, you know, Orientalism as a kind of popular fiction, a kind of inventory of images and values, becomes ingrained in the kind of earliest development of minds uh, in Europe and then begins to perpetuate itself.
1: What was driving that interest in, in ruins and in past civilizations? And what exactly gave them that cultural arrogance, that they were so much better. This, this is colonial arrogance. The fact that you can
0: conquer these lands and that you can um, subjugate them.
1: I mean, you know, the, when
0: the British were able to subjugate uh, the, you know, the Indian, uh, um, you know, uh, subcontinent, I mean, that's an extraordinary culture with an incredible history and power. The very fact they were able to do that gives them a sense that they're superior. And, and um, the superiority is not just a military kind. That's the key here. It's not just military and economic. That's where it begins. Um, it, it has to be cultural uh, in order to be cemented, in order to be legitimized.
1: Said talks about this in Orientalism. He describes Napoleon Bonaparte's expedition to Egypt in the late 18th century. Napoleon conquered the Egyptian cities of Cairo and Alexandria in 1798. On his conquest, he took with him top geographers, linguists and archaeologists, who tried to map and categorize everything about Egyptian culture.
0: So these people, part of the kind of military expedition, this kind of army of knowledge makers, this is how it has to be seen. And, and that's part of the conquest. So, yes, this, this, this shows incredible arrogance, extraordinary arrogance, um, which comes out of the power to conquer. This this is the only way I can I can explain it.
1: Said's own life was shaped by colonialism.
0: Said was born in Jerusalem uh, in 1935 uh, under the uh, at that point, in fact, uh, it was Mandatory Palestine under British rule. So he was born in a colonial framework uh, that is absolutely essential, and um,
1: he his schooling was a
0: British colonial schooling.
1: Saïd moved with his family from Jerusalem to Cairo in 1947 when he was 12 years old. Egypt had gained its independence from Britain in 1922, but British troops were still in Cairo when Saïd and his family arrived.
0: And he grows up in Cairo, um, where, of course, you know, Egypt is, is an independent nation. Yes, but the but the British colonial structure still exists, particularly in the schooling for the elites. So, so he. He is prepared unwittingly by by being um, an object of the same exact education uh, of how, you know, the youth of Europe, the elite youth of Europe, right, the educated youth of Europe, learns about itself through various kinds of representations uh, of culture, uh, of itself and of others. So um, that's ingrained in him.
1: He embodies it. This was an important part of Said's formative years and played a huge role in the work he did later in life, including Orientalism. Said was born Palestinian and was educated under British colonial structures in Egypt. He grew up speaking both Arabic and English and did not feel entirely comfortable with either identity. In addition, his father was an American citizen. In his 2002 text, Reflections on Exile and Other Essays, Said comments on his youth. Quote, with an unexceptionally Arab family name like Saeed connected to an improbably British first name, I was an uncomfortable, anomalous student all through my early years. A Palestinian going to school in Egypt with an English first name, an American passport and no certain identity at all.
0: Eventually, the young Said ends up in, in the United States, goes to school in the U.S. and follows an American education of a very elite kind, you know, goes to Princeton and to Harvard. And becomes professor at Columbia. It's the it's sort of the epitome of a very successful young American, um, which I which I think up until a certain point, he fully embodied. Meaning that the Arabness of Said was uh, well, it was always present in his personal life, but but it was not part of his intellectual
1: world. While teaching at Columbia University, Said reached a turning point. In June of 1967, a war broke out between Israel, Jordan, Syria, and Egypt. This was known as the Six-Day War. After six days of fighting, Israel occupied the Gaza Strip, the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt, the Golan Heights of Syria, and the West Bank and Arab sector of East Jerusalem. Israel now occupied land that was previously Palestinian territory, including all of Jerusalem and its holy sites. The war had a huge impact on Said who was born in Jerusalem and grew up Palestinian. As
0: a professor at Columbia in New York, uh, he gets to experience the New York side of the Six-Day War uh, in 1967, which um, radicalized him. That's, I think we have to use that term here. Politicizes him in a certain way that hadn't been before uh, in terms of him being a Palestinian, an Arab generally, but a Palestinian specifically.
1: For the next decade, Saeed focused his attention on politics. In this 10-year period,
0: uh, Said will become increasingly concerned with matters of, of Palestinian matters and, and with generally how the colonial and, in, and by then imperial machine, which now would include the United States, right, is engaged in these societies. What is it doing to these societies? So suddenly the background of his childhood and his youth in Jerusalem and Cairo is kind of coming to the forefront in a very different light, you see. And in the same period, um, um, three things happen. One, of course, is, okay, is, the, is the research that leads into Orientalism. The second is his first work, his first political work, which, which is collected in a book called The Question of Palestine. And also he becomes part of the Palestinian National Council. Uh, in 1977, a year before Oriental is published. I think this is a very important part of the biography, uh, and, and it, it helps us contextualize the book. Now, Said himself always said, and it's very, very important, that I am a professor of literature. I don't do politics. Of C- course, he did politics, but he was trying to separate the two things Uh, I think he tried very hard to do this his entire life. Whether he succeeded or not, it's kind of irrelevant because in a sense, uh, I don't think that they can be separated. But in any case, I think that it enabled him to work a certain way. So Orientalism as a book, the book now, also draws from his learning as a professor of comparative literature and as a, uh, a, a student of great European cultures and its history. But with a slight change, well, this is not the change, it's not slight, it's actually huge, right? The perspective, the shifting of perspective is, is incredibly important. Suddenly, he begins
1: to see this from the other side. Said received a very Western education, beginning in British-occupied Cairo, through his time at Princeton and Harvard. But his research and works in the years leading up to Orientalism gave him a non-Western perspective on colonialism and Western occupation in the rest of the world
0: at that point um his interest in colonialism also begins
1: uh which will inform all of the post-orientalism work what is at its highest level is the book arguing and then and maybe take us through the arc of the argument and some of your you know the pieces of it that you find most compelling
0: the object of study is is um you know various levels of of, of uh, cultural making culture making from literature which includes uh, travel narratives all the way to you know historical works um social science sort of works where you know linguistics and philology and all the way to political uh both both works of politics meaning sort of Political philosophy, but but also politics as a uh, as a vocation, as a practice, right? So uh, the whole machinery of culture and education of Europe—it's very, of course, very important. Of course, to also say at the outset, you know, the beginning, that he that the book also shows how the categories East and West are really—they don't exist as such. They're, they're, they they are—they exist as categories because they've been invented as categories. There are categories of geography and history. Those are the two terms, right? Geography and history, um, which are um, inventions. Uh, it's not that people don't exist in these societies, you know, real people with real histories and so on. It's that it's that uh, whatever the real histories and real experiences are, uh, they are overcome by these constructions. Uh, which then, um, you know, these constructions are perfectly real. They're constructions, but they're perfectly real. They have real consequences. And then the book is also, in that respect, a kind of study of those consequences at a secondary level.
1: Said drew inspiration from the Italian philosopher Antonio Gramsci. In his pamphlets known as the Prison Notebooks, Gramsci explores why people in lower levels of power agree to be ruled by those in higher positions of power. He says the dominating people manipulate morality, culture, and logic to gain the upper hand. This includes creating geographic boundaries that can be used to categorize and oppress others.
0: I think the motto is from Marx. It's a classic, you know, uh, they can't represent themselves, they must be represented. So, you know, geography is, is, a, is a kind of mode of thinking, a framework of thinking that produces certain representations. Um, history does the same, right? Uh, um, you know, living culture versus dead culture, um, because, you know, the pa- you know the, these cultures have never come into the present. Uh, that's kind of a crude way to think of it.
1: Another powerful tool is the manipulation of language. In the 1960s, Said encountered the post-structuralist thinkers. They believe that language is essential when trying to explain the social world. Of all the post-structuralists, Said was most influenced by Michel Foucault. Foucault was a French philosopher and political activist. His early work focused on how language shapes reality. And Foucault does this, of course, studying, in essence, the history of
0: France, right? He's not you know, interested in anything outside of France, but he does it in unbelievable detail. And it's very, very important to note, by the way, um, that um, in the in the book it, in English translated the Order of Things, uh, which was published in 1966, Foucault talks about some of these figures that Said will also look at in Orientalism, including the 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 number of intellectuals who followed Napoleon in the expedition as it was called, uh, conquest of Egypt. Uh, Foucault is interested in these figures because they they were the the great minds of that era. Uh, it's not an accident. And 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 in being the great minds of that era, they shaped culture and education of that era. So um, I think that's what's attractive to, to Said, Foucault's understanding that knowledge is power
1: and that language is power. Does Said give some examples of how language shapes reality in a way that benefits, you know, the the ruling class or something?
0: I think the simplest uh, underst- the simplest way to to talk about how language has power is, of course, to think of uh, well, you know, racism. Racist language um, enables uh, the person who articulates it or uses it to feel superior, and it certainly demeans the person who receives it, but also uh, justifies. Um, whatever would be the uh, inequity in the relationship,
1: which would include the oppression. European colonizers strategically used language to justify their conquest of the East. The French used used this term mission
0: civilisatrice," which means civilizing mission, which was the Napoleonic expedition, was a civilizing mission. We're gonna go to these Egyptians, and after we map them and understand what they are and how they work, we're going to show them better ways to do things, you know, you know, build better you know, waterways to the Nile, for example, uh, because we have the know how, the technology and so on.
1: This myth was a big part of how the colonizers justified colonization. They said they were helping the people they were colonizing by bringing them into the modern world in exchange for labor and natural resources. This view puts the colonizers in the dominant position. So language, once you demean the other.
0: Once you, you actually articulate in language how the other is uh, beneath you, then justifies all kinds of things from uh, things that might actually uh, make the existence of the other better. Even that can be said, but, you know, better comes a certain cost, by the way, all the way to, of course, annihilating the other. Right. Language is never neutral because human beings are never neutral. Right. We human be- beings always enact or uh, value judgments. It's impossible not to. Right. We're not machines. We we differentiate, we discern, we, we make distinctions. That's how we understand the world. So nothing is neutral in the human sphere.
1: The first two thirds of Orientalism focuses on the history of European colonialism and the structures that reinforce the colonialist view of the East. But in the last section of Orientalism, Said talks about Orientalism, the academic discipline, from the period following World War II up to the present time of writing in the 1970s.
0: It's a very, very important part of the book uh, because it it updates what is uh, a history of culture and, uh, and politics and culture uh, in the 19th century. It updates this this uh, history uh, in terms of the 20th century. In, in two domains. One is in the way the modern university is, is created, particularly the American university, uh, and how um, area studies fields are created uh, as a result of the post-World War II American domination of the globe. Um, uh, this then become, or, so Orientalism disappears from the masthead as it were, and is substituted by these, these more neutral-sounding <laughs> uh, um, names, you know, Department of Asian Studies, Department of Middle Eastern Studies, and so on, uh, which are these hubs of expert knowledge that is linked directly to political hegemony, to political power, right? So that's actually a very important part of the book um, that I think opens up, um, side to the f- later work uh, that uh, that has to do more with uh, the study of imperialism. Uh, the other aspect of the book that is equally important um, is how, you know, Orientalism is a way of studying uh, the process by which colonialism leads and is part of the history of nationalism. In, again, two fronts. On the European side, how colonial Power, you know, breeds nation states, uh, a certain kind of uh, argument about independence, self determination, freedom, etc. Um, while it denies that to the colonized societies until the twentieth century and the great period of decolonization, anti colonial uh, struggle. Uh, where this European invention, the nation state, is the means by which these societies rebel against their colonial Orientalist oppressors to, to, you know, to liberate themselves and found their own uh, nations. And how um, the Orientalist elements bleed into these uh, new institutions of independent nations in the so-called, at that point, remember the w- w- word is third world, right? How they bleed into the independent structures of the third world and how in that sense, they compromise the, you know, the emancipatory project. They compromise the, 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 the real freedom uh, that the national independence movements called for. Uh, that second th- aspect becomes incredibly important for Said from that point on uh, and his studies turn more towards uh,
1: that. What was the immediate reception of this book and how has its interpretation changed? It was criticized viciously uh, from all kinds
0: of sides. Uh, Well, it's clearly criticized uh, uh, by the uh, Euro-American Academy because it was an insult, of course, to them and their privileges but it was criticized in the Arab world. This is very, very significant. The Arab world, to a large extent, rejected the book because it saw it, saw it as very interesting, or so mistakenly, as an elite view of uh, an assimilated Arab who knows more about the West than he knows about Arab societies. Um, and, and so, and part of that, my interpretation would be, it was motivated by, again, if not the inability, the unwillingness to confront the deep um, ingrained structures of Orientalism in, in uh, since we're talking about Arab societies, in, in, in the Arab self, in, in the way that the Arab self, is, you know, understands itself. I, under, I understand this is a huge generalization, okay? Arab societies are very different, but nonetheless, you know, the point is that this difference is, is erased by Ori- Orientalism. The point is that there is no difference. All Arabs are the same, right? So that part of it, to the degree that that has been sort of incorporated, internalized is the word, you know, how that has been underestimated in in and by Arab intellectuals, I think, was part of what motivated the critique.
1: Of course, I think a big reason this book continues to be celebrated is it's viewed as the moment of birth of post-colonial studies. Um, so I'd love to ask you, you know, is that claim true?
0: So Orientalism, um, I don't know if you can say that it created postcolonial colonial studies uh, per se, because post-colonial studies deserves to be credited to uh, anti-colonial intellectuals. Um, many of whom would not were not yet, yet, this is very, very important, in, um, in American or British universities. Now, Saeed is, of course, as I said in the very, very beginning, part of that anti-colonial, you know, group of anti-colonial intellectuals. There's no doubt about that in my mind. That has to be, if we, if we leave that out, then we don't understand both his motivation and his makeup. And, and Saeed was very, very good about um, attributing Credit to the to the great figures of the anti-colonial um, uh, of anti-colonial culture that I just mentioned, partic- particularly the Caribbean uh, poets, African thinkers, um, uh, especially. But yes, the Academy has has singled it out as a kind of departure point, and um, I think that um, it served that purpose. Uh, it, it served the purpose for establishing a, a field that very quickly became fashionable. Said, I'm not saying that, Said himself says that, you know, near the end of his life, he criticized it with real vehemence. He felt that post-colonial studies had become an easy field, you know, a kind of, it's easy to criticize Europe in the end. That's the easiest thing to do. Of course, it's like, look at them, they're racists, you know, uh, they're colonial, you know, uh, murderers i mean they're massacre societies of course that that's part of their history that's the easiest thing to do the hardest thing to do is this kind of self-critique that he was asking for the non-europeans to be doing uh to the for the the self-critique that he was asking the post-colonial thinkers to be doing so i think that's very important to relativize the influence and not to think of it that not to reproduce what i'm mean to say is i don't want to reproduce um the kind of uh Conventional idea, Orientalism is a book that launched postcolonial studies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, because in some ways, it should be the conscience of postcolonial studies, because it is a book about um, self-examination. It was part of his own being, of his own coming to terms with himself at a very peculiar and rather accidental uh, sort of moment in history for him. And and if we see our Orientalism as a kind of blueprint. You know that we then we just follow and apply, then we will end up uh, in these very very simplistic notions about otherness, uh, and 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 so on and so forth, and then criticize you know the easy criticism of the West uh, as if the West really exists. Okay, this is the whole point that the West does not exist any more than the East does, right? Uh, So it's it's uh, so the influence of the book, uh, and I think the beyond its power uh, of convention, uh, will be always uh, that its students, the ones that study it very carefully, will see it as a book of self-critique, as a book of um, examining uh, various structures of identity that that block our capacity to understand the other, which means block our capacity to understand ourselves. That's part of the same process, right? And in that sense, the critique of nationalism, it's a critique of post-colonial societies. It's not not a a rallying cry of post-colonial societies.
1: When Edward Said wrote Orientalism, he didn't just challenge colonization. He called into question the West's entire self-identity. It helped loosen the knot that Orientalism and European colonialism created, a knot we are still untangling today.
0: It has created a term and an adjective, a, a, a term of judgment, uh, that has entered common language. Uh, I, th- I think that when a book does that, we're talking about huge magnitude of influence, right? I mean, uh, a book creates a term, uh, and that people don't even know where the term came from, right? It, you know, that, that is huge influence,
1: Rit Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Faran Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Pechi. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Rit Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, RitLarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.